0: Welcome to Breeder Syndicate. Welcome. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Breeder Syndicate. I'm here with uh, our other host, Notso. I don't even like calling you a co-host because you're you're really just the other host. Right? Yeah, the other
1: host, indeed.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, to, so today we're going to cover um, uh, cannabis breeding as it was back in the Dutch era, mostly, and pre-Dutch era, and a little bit after, and why it matters today. And why, wh- how we apply that to what we're working with today.
1: We're going to try to take you through like some early days of breeding, kind of up to what we've already done so far, which is like the, the 80s Holland era and that style. Yeah. And then we'll move forward onto different stuff later. And so yeah. we we thought about like, um, I don't know exactly how much time we'll spend on each specific topic, but we thought about like, it might be interesting to um we thought it might be interesting to talk about how we got here as far as breeding techniques.
0: Yeah. I see in I the comments, that, uh, so we have to people are, know where we're going. We have to know where we came from. I think. Yeah, that's a, exactly.
1: Wow. So, yeah. Um, you know, the, the easiest way, you know, we won't, we could spend an enormous amount of time on how cannabis moved around places. Sure. Um, but, you know, the basic premise is that for, most of the like what we consider to be like the land race regions, right? Mm. When people were starting to get imports into America, they were coming from Mexico, uh, Colombia, Panama, Jamaica, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, um, you know, those type of places. uh, And they were importing seeded weed, right? And so how did those farmers, how did those farmers get to the point where they were growing tons of cannabis and exporting it to our region, right? Well, basically, it's at some point in the past. We don't need to spend a super amount of time on this. But, you know, somewhere humans figured out that THC had cool effects. Yeah, it um, gets fucked up. You know, by by a lot of by a lot of people, you know, um, you know, humans started interacting with plants and the nature around them. They started figuring out which ones were good to eat, which ones were good for health, which ones did this, which ones did that. And so on a certain level, there was a point where um People figured out that, you know, marijuana, that, you know, the wild marijuana strains had some effects, whether it was like hand rub shirass, uh, making hashish by rubbing mm-hmm. buds and then getting it on their hands and then rubbing it off and smoking it or consuming it or various aspects like that. People started to sort out that this was a useful plant, right? Yeah. And so like just every other kind of useful plant from corn to watermelons to anything else, people started messing with it to get more of what they wanted. Yeah. Right. And so we, what we think is, is we think as as you go from wild populations, right, that um, that uh, started that humans started interacting with to planted populations of cannabis by humans, mm-hmm. um, what we assume is the traditional method is that people would go out into these fields and they would pick of females that they liked the smell, they liked the structure, they liked whatever it was about it. Maybe they liked that it had increased THC compared to its neighbors. Sure. And they would keep those plants, and then therefore next year they would plant a bunch of seeds from their favorite females. Yeah. Right? And so then over time, year after year, generation after generation, humans started slowly improving their local gene pool and breeding it towards things they wanted. Yeah, Maybe it was terps back then, although they obviously wouldn't have called it that. Aromas, effects, weight, you know, finished. Who knows? Different farmers, I'm sure, had vastly different things. But, sure. you know, farmers back then, seed collecting was part of the the way they grew everything. Yeah. So you picked your favorite plants. They were seeded. And you grew that next year. And then over time, uh, humans started having a massive impact on what kind of, you know, what kind of plants were being grown. Because they'd done this selection over time, over time, over time, and that pretty much I think happened um, virtually everywhere, Um, anywhere that cannabis was endemic. Sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of not well known, but just really quickly, they think that cannabis sort of started in the highland areas around China, Tibetan Plateau, um, you know that kind of region. It went down into India, it went down into uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, and about twenty seven hundred years ago. Uh, we have verifiable evidence that the Scythians, who were like central steppe people, were yeah. using it in their culture. That it was being used in the very northern parts of Afghanistan and in certain parts of the Caucasus Mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that also we they found THC burned in temples about 60 miles south of Jerusalem about 2,700 years ago. Highly smoking the bomb bud. So right, so there's so there's a situation where obviously like we have a, we don't know how long ago it started, but China and <laughs> uh, Tibet and the Caucasus Mountains and where Israel is right now are obviously pretty far far apart from each other, yeah. especially from the way that people got around at the time, which was you know camels, horses, donkeys, etc. Right. So it mm-hmm. so smoking and consuming either hash or cannabis. Um, is at least three thousand years old, documented in multiple spots. Yeah, it probably goes back uh, significantly farther than that. We just haven't found absolute evidence that it occurred. Sure. Um, and so, you know, then you have then you have a scenario in which. Um, so that's kind of how it starts starts up in Tibet and China area. It comes down into Pakistan, India, Afghanistan. It starts going into Iran and the Middle East. Then it goes mm-hmm. down into uh, into Africa. Right. Yeah. Um, in Russia, it, it turns into what becomes known as Ruderolus. Uh And um, so so then so then there's a you know, the the weird part is the Americas, right, is how it got mm-hmm. to America. Uh, it seems like um, although this isn't 100 percent verified, but it seems like that most of the stuff that ended up in America came along with the conquistadors and then later the slave trade. Uh, It seems like a bunch of hemp. Hemp was obviously used for most rope, most sails. Was Sailors brought it with them um, everywhere because it was like if you got shipwrecked or something, you might need to grow a crop of hemp to turn it into sails or rope again so you could get off your island or wherever you were. Um, So, you know, uh, hemp was hemp was critical to that era's um, trade. And so it was kind of brought everywhere. So it seems like uh, to Brazil to the caribbean to mexico when they um when they start talking about that kind of thing genetically most cannabis from those regions ties back to some kind of african
0: yeah
1: right Now the weird thing and uh there's there's not a lot of evidence to back this up but the strange thing is is when they did genetic work on panamanian and colombian Mm -hmm. that has to tie back to uh um to southeast asia. Yeah. Okay, which is weird. And so I only have like one little tidbit on that and it has nothing to do with cannabis necessarily, but obviously at some point um if that if it's true and the genetics of Panama and Colombia tie back to more southeast asia region, then somehow it had to get from there to to from southeast asia to the western half true. of south america, right? Yeah. And so there's essentially two options, either It happened once the Spanish and others started trading with the East uh, after the conquests. Or there's another interesting thing where there's Pacific Islanders and some others that they've done genetic testing on in Southeast Asia and some of these islands where they have discovered pre-Columbian Indian people's DNA uh, in these Pacific Islanders from about 11 or 1200 AD. Oh, wow. So we know for a fact, because they interbred, they had babies with them. They implanted some of their DNA from pre-Columbian peoples into Pacific Islanders. And so we know for a fact that hundreds of years, three, four hundred years perhaps, before uh, Columbus sailed and discovered and rediscovered uh, the Caribbean and Americas, um, there was some kind of trade or at least interrelationships between... The Pacific Islanders and the Panamanian and Colombian peoples. Um, and whether, know if people are fucking, they're probably smoking. Yeah, right? and, and and since we know that that hemp Fringe was was absolutely <laughs> was absolutely required for sailing, uh, it makes sense that it theoretically could have been required for sailing um, back then. And they they traded some of these pre-Columbian indigenous peoples that were sailing out to the Pacific Islands. Um, They traded them some seeds and the seeds would be necessary on both ports if they're going both places. And so that's not proof. We have guaranteed proof that they were interbreeding in 1100 AD because of the way DNA and genetics works. So we know that there was trade ongoing. Um, We don't know exactly when, but uh, it does seem like Colombian and Panamanian tie in somehow to the Southeast Asia portion of the gene pool, not the African, where Mexican, Jamaican, the island weed. The stuff that's on the eastern side of South America—that all seems to come from um, African origins, which makes sense because there was just a mammoth amount of trade, both slave and otherwise, coming over from all portions of Africa over to the New World. Yeah, right. Um, And so we know some of it was introduced then. It's entirely Mm -hmm. possible that that some of it was introduced earlier. I mean, you know, some of this some of this stuff is not poorly. Poorly, you know, documents, poorly documented for yeah. lack of a better term, uh, you know, the conquistadors burned most of the writings of the Mayans and the Aztecs and the other peoples because they thought they were devil works. Mm-hmm. So most of their knowledge was sort of lost. So who knows, maybe they even had it written down uh, and mm-hmm. we just don't know. So yeah. you fast forward again and you have these various people in these various regions that are improving their own genetic stock. The people in Thailand, the people in Laos, the people in Mexico, the people in Colombia, they're growing their stock. They are working with what them and other local farmers in their area have access to. Right. And they're breeding it every year. And that's where all of these varietals kind of came from. Um, Obviously, it was all seeded weed. Um, You know, there was, uh, you know, and there was two distinct cultures going on, too. Right. Maybe we should mention this. So. In the North Indian, Pakistan, and Afghanistan regions, it was primarily a hashish culture. So they viewed the plant as essentially, I don't want to say they viewed it as garbage, but they viewed it as as a way to get a hold of the trichomes. Yeah. Uh, Whether they did hand rub, like I was talking about, or whether they did dry sift or whatever method they used to extract it, uh, they thought that the proper use of cannabis was to turn it into hash. Yeah. Um, You know, and so, but then, you go to Laos or Cambodia or Thailand or Mexico or Colombia, these kind of places, they smoked flour.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you had some groups breeding for specific, basically hash plants, right? And then you had some groups breeding for smokable flour. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and those were the kind of those were the kind of s- selections that people were making back then, right? And then, you know, uh, Obviously, like America is founded on capitalistic principles, right? And so mm-hmm. if there's a demand somewhere and there's a supply somewhere else, Adam Smith says that the invisible hand should come along and get the supply from where it is to where the demand is. right? Yeah. So you have all these regions that we've talked about have been probably improving their crops year to year. They're saving their best seed like they do with their food crops. They're slowly improving their genetic lines. But there's really not a lot of interaction between them and other groups. They're kind mm-hmm. of growing
0: what's available in their area, except except for the one thing we we, we had talked about. And I believe it's referenced in Rob Clark's hashish book. Except in Afghanistan, where they were importing, they had learned the trade of uh, of of hand rubbing and hash collecting via the route from India. So most of the stuff during that time, they were importing Indian uh, uh, more sativa type narrow leaf varieties to afghanistan because that's what the indians were using to make their hash and they weren't using their afghanis in their fields yet they, they weren't using those to get the trichomes collect and make the hash they were actually using indian sativas during that time and it wasn't until more modern uh the, the past 1950 when they started using and collecting their own varieties so maybe a better way to more accurate way to state it
1: would to say that like we can't discount that there was some regional trading going on sure Right. Between, say, you know, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, they're all connected yeah. to one another. You can kind of go back and forth. There could, be, there could be Panamanian and Colombian going back and forth. There sure. could be some Caribbean exchanges. But in general, there wasn't Caribbean trading with Thailand, yeah, trading no. with Afghanistan. Yeah. There wasn't like different regions of the world. The mm-hmm. regions themselves mixed a bit. You know, uh, it's obviously not written down. So it's really hard to determine with any kind of factual basis how it exactly occurred. Um, But you have all these over all hundreds of years, by the time that like uh, America gets involved, you have all these uh, weed cultures that have developed around the world. Some of them are hash cultures. Some -hmm. of them are smokable flower cultures. So obviously they made different decisions on their strains based on, uh, you know, whether they wanted to smoke flower or whether they wanted to, to create a hash plant. Um, and you know, prohibition was, was fully going on in America and, um, you know, invisible hand comes in and there's a bunch of people in America that want to smoke pot, musicians, Mm -hmm. jazz artists, um, hippies, uh, counterculture, beatniks, uh, various, various types of people get introduced to it. Um, most likely MOTA, uh, probably most people's first experiences with it were probably Mexican yeah um, coming into the country there was a lot of you know back and flow over the border uh with Mexican like you know farm working and stuff like that. They probably brought it with them. There's yeah. definitely records of of jazz famous jazz people smoking it in the twenties and thirties
0: smoking that jazz cabbage, yeah, you know
1: i mean obviously it was a, it was a big enough issue that uh they decided to do some crazy prohibition in the late nineteen thirties um up till that point and uh so So then you have a situation where you start hitting like what matters to most people, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, with, with this way that we've kind of brought ourselves to hear is that various entrepreneurs decided to start sourcing weed from various countries that grew weed and figure out a way to get it into America and sell it for a high dollar to American people. And the difference in profit between buying it from a Thai farmer to selling it to a guy that lives in Venice beach was extremely high. So there was a lot of economic incentive for these people to start figuring out ways to smuggle it into the country and, and feed the demand. Right. Yes. And so, uh, sadly, uh, one thing that was, so we start getting imports, right. We start getting, we start getting imports and we start getting things from, uh, Panama, people start smuggling from Panama and Colombia. People certainly mm-hmm. start smuggling from Jamaica and other Caribbean uh, islands, Mexico, obviously, Hawaii, Ma- Hawaii um, you know, Asia. There's some pretty famous smugglers that were working in Thailand and Cambodia mm-hmm. and Laos in the 60s. And they start, you know, all the famous stuff you've heard about uh, Colombian gold, Panama red, Thai sticks. Every, every, um, I'm sure Matt can think of some others. There's a bunch of them, oh, uh, Jamaican, Jamaican lamb's bread, yes. uh, you know, Kali from, yeah. from uh, the Kali. Mexican, um, you know, Mexican stuff was generally named by region. You had Michoacan, you had Oaxacan, you had this, you had Garan, that, yeah. yeah, you had various things. And that's kind of like, those were the first names that you would get, um, you know, the very first names of weed was like where it's from and maybe some nickname, like maybe, maybe, maybe they dried Colombian gold into a brownish gold color. mm -hmm. And then there was Panamanian red and it had red hair or there was this. And, you know, they wrapped, they wrapped in Thailand, they wrapped the loose buds around sticks to make it like a more, these go from like a super leafy hermaphroditic loose flowers. And they pack them tight to make it into something. And you get tie stick. And so all the original names, they're not really
0: strain names. They're like, this is where it's from. And this is its nickname that we gave to it from where it's from. Possibly a color or smell or some other attribute. Yeah. Yeah. you know, or a rhyme. Yeah. Right. Maui, Wowie.
1: Yeah, exactly. They guaranteed picked it because it rhymed. Yep. That was, that's the reason. Right. And so, you know, um, and so that's when, so that's when, like the, the breeding that everybody is familiar with kind of starts, right? You've got all this seeded weed coming into America from all these regions. I named Southeast Asia, the Caribbean, uh, Mexico, America, uh, you know, South America, that type of thing. And as you know, I mean, for the younger cats out there, you know, I used to sit there with my head down and a tray at an angle And Mm -hmm. you would break your weed up here. Right. And then that allowed all the seeds to roll down the the tray and collect at the bottom lip of the tray as you broke up all your herb. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you'd have a bunch of fluffed up herb for a bowl or a a bong or rolling a joint or something along those lines. Right. Um, And so everybody got free seeds. Right. Free seeds. We weren't really too much. We weren't really too much of a hash culture. And that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why, and then also hash is is trichomes separated from the flower and, and the such. So everything that was coming into America at first was various kinds of sativas. Yes, because the sativas were the buds, you know. Yeah. And if you were getting imported Afghan Afghani Indica hash, you were getting blocks of hash.
0: Yeah. You weren't getting uh, Afghan bud like that. Import. Yeah, it didn't come with free seeds. Yeah, yeah. There's no Those free did. seeds. No, there was sometimes the you random know, seed and break a hash. Yeah, stamp. No,
1: yeah. the random. But in a, I mean, there's a famous actually. Uh, there's some serious debate in Europe over uh, over. The, there's two camps basically on the on the White Widow camp. There's yeah. uh, you know uh, just so and the only reason why I bring that up is because there's a guy over there Ingmar uh, and one of the one of the stories about how White Widow happened is like the founding part of White Widow is he was breaking up a block of imported hash. And mm-hmm. some seeds fell out. Yeah. And he got uh, an original Afghan from some region out of that block of seeds. Yeah. So it was rare. Um, you know, there was some hash being imported into America. But like I said, you know, it uh, it didn't come with free seeds. Yeah. Where um, there was no seedless in any of these other regions. So all the sativas that we were importing came with free seed. Yes. And that free seed... Is the start of every famous breeder you ever heard of's journey. Yes,
0: it for is for the most.
1: For the most, yeah, part, right? it really is. Yeah, it, it, it is. So people start smoking weed, right? <clears throat> people start liking the weed, and then some people have, get the idea. I have these seeds. I wonder what would happen if I started mm-hmm. growing my own weed, mm-hmm. right? And then there's places. Uh, some of them are pretty famous: the Emerald Triangle, Trinity County, Humboldt County, Mendocino County, where I live. Um, the central coast, San Francisco, uh, Santa Cruz area of Bakersfield. Uh, yeah. Of California. I but yes, make it problem. legendarily, you know, <laughs> basically anywhere where it was mountainous, mm-hmm. remote, people weren't going to find it. And the climate was cool. I'm yeah. not saying people weren't doing it in other parts of the country, because of course they were. Um, but, uh, you know, wherever people could start to get away with it, with their, with their imports, they start growing. Yeah. And meccas were built. And meccas were built. And then the only reason why I brought up those regions is because enough people in those regions all decided to start doing it that it mm-hmm. started the beginnings of American growing culture. Sure. Right. If you're growing in upstate New York or Oklahoma or Florida or some shit, um, you're probably trying to keep it pretty small. Yeah. You know, there was definitely some stuff with hippies in Santa Cruz and Mendocino County and Central Coast and different areas that. Um, they were a little bit more open with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was a little bit more trading going on and a little bit more of a culture started to develop where sure. in some of the other more harsh police state regions of the United States uh, that were a lot more populated, it was a lot more secretive and, you know, circles were even smaller. Right. Sure. So, you know, people start growing seed, probably with varying success and they start discovering stuff. Right. They start discovering that when you grow Thai and you grow Colombian, boy, is it hard to finish in America.
0: Yeah, very.
1: You know, the stuff wants to go till December, or January. Our weather doesn't go that long. Um, mm-hmm. People start having issues with getting, you know, because if you could grow weed from the seed, then you could get free weed. Yeah. And right. you wouldn't have to be buying it. And what does this free weed look like when it hasn't yeah. been compressed and baled and shipped from, you know, international yeah. locations? Well, what would it be like if you got it fresh? So the initial success for people was, um, you know, people, people could get the Mexicans to finish because the Mexicans typically were farther away from the equator and they were a little shorter. Right. And they had significant struggles getting the Colombian and the Panama and the, and the ties and the different stuff like that to finish. Right. Yeah. So this, this, this is where people start to get the idea of like, I got some tie stick or I got some Colombian gold and mm-hmm. I got some Oaxacan. Right. And what happens if I grow them up and I cross them?
0: Yeah. That's, that's basically the start of American breeding.
1: That's the, that's the, the honest to God, that's the start of how everybody in America started breeding things. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say America is unique. But it is rare in the sense that America is the plate or one of the places where, for the first time in hundreds of years, people started crossing these wildly different gene pools
0: from these different regions together. Yes. Right. Um, I think I think the way you put it the other night, and I, I wrote it down because it was it was worded very well. Whoever and wherever the weed was becoming imported the most, that's where the weed was blended together the first time. Right and that's that's well put uh, and so
1: you know um and so there's so so yeah so basically um you know there's uh you know there's some pretty famous stuff that started happening then um uh, mm-hmm. people started getting these different these different things they started breeding them together um they started experimenting with stuff um in the San Francisco bay area and in Santa Cruz and stuff like what became known as haze started which uh, according to Sam and others was essentially Colombian by Colombian. Um, You know, and, uh, but you needed a greenhouse. You needed, they figured with some of these, some of these land races, you needed to grow it in a mild climate, which Mm -hmm. the central coast and uh, the Bay area definitely had. And you needed, you needed some way to protect it from the weather and give it maybe some heat or some whatever and, and, and finish it. Right. Mm-hmm. so they start crossing things yeah uh, one of the famous people that started crossing things is a guy named rob clark right yes uh rob has some very famous stuff that he did he started crossing colombians and mexicans uh because mexicans finished quite faster and mm-hmm. so he was trying to get the qualities of the two and get something that would finish in california yeah right and so they start breeding. Obviously, Sam Skunkman is breeding. Obviously, there's other various people that are popping and doing all kinds of stuff. A lot of the the oldest and most legendary names that we know, yes, of, uh, are from this era. Sure, they're from this like pioneer. Take some Thai, take some Cambodian, cross them together. Cross it with some Colombian. Cross it with some Mexican. Cross it with some this. Cross some Jamaican by this. You know, mm-hmm. trade some seeds with your friend um, and. You know, uh, so that's kind of like the start of like uh, cannabis growing in America. Yes. On any kind of scale. And yeah. so even when I started in the early 90s, um, I still have them some over there. There's I got like three books that I bought. Uh, knowledge was extremely limited. There was sure. no Internet. There was no forums. There was no, no easy forums exchange. to confuse you. Yeah. No, And so and so even for me in the 90s, think about how difficult it must have been um, for the people in the 70s that had even less knowledge. Oh, I'm sure. Right? Because one of the things I'll hold it up right now. One of the things that taught me breeding. Was this the Bible, Bob, this is the Bible, uh, Rob Clark, took his experience with growing a bunch of weed and breeding a bunch of weed, and he figured out how marijuana grows, how it breeds, how it triggers, how all the different traits, the different traits. And he wrote this, I mean, Matt's right. He wrote sort of a Bible. Yeah. Right. He wrote a basic Bible. So when I started out, I was able to buy this Bible when I got interested in Mm -hmm. weed and I was able to read this book over and over and over again. And it taught me a ton about how to grow cannabis. Yeah. I'm sure Matt had the same experience. Most breeders, history. most breeders that get curious about breeding, um, you've read Rob Clark's book.
0: Yeah, if you're a seed maker and you actually are passionate and want to learn and and make things better, you all, almost everyone eventually runs into Rob Clark's work. And eventually, I think with the Breeder Syndicate thing, one of the plans is to do for Patreon a course based on uh, cannabis evolution and ethnobotany uh rob clark gave us his permission to use that for a course so i thought that would be pretty cool to do Yeah, and so he i
1: mean i don't need to go through all of it but he started talking about the differences in latitude and you know finish times and the differences in the various kinds of cannabis and regions and what to expect from them how to make seed how to make seed mature like really like and so you know he deserves an enormous amount of credit sure uh because I'm sure there was an enormous amount of fuck ups.
0: Yeah. In order to As learn with breeding, when breeding is 90% fuck ups,
1: there was a, there was a, there was a, you know, they had to learn all that and mm-hmm. they had to, they had to put that down into some kind of information base. And I'm sure his journey to learn was significantly harder uh, than the people that came after him. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Because there was no books for him to buy. Exactly. Right. I mean, I don't think there was any cannabis books no. in the 60s. And, you know, um, there was not reading. I mean, in the 70s, it sort of exploded a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Steve Murphy, uh, who we've talked Murphy about. Murphy
0: Stevens. <laughs> Murphy
1: Stevens. It was his yeah. pen name. But, you know, the gentleman that gave the Afghani seeds to uh, Seattle, uh, Greg, uh, which he used to, to create what we know as Northern Lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote some I think, like, by 74, 73, 74-ish, he had some books out. Uh, Mel Frank and Ed Rosenthal started contributing some stuff. Uh, There was uh, uh, Cincinnati Tips. Um, There was High Times. Uh, There was various other... Magazine. There's all kinds, yeah. There was all kinds of things. So people started... 70s is where all of a sudden there starts to be, like, um, information coming out that people sure. can access and they don't have to like learn from scratch or what their neighbor knows or what their buddy that got them into it knows. Yeah. Right? And uh and so and so you know Rob uh Rob did things like Rob cl- crossed Colombian and Mexican. Right? Rob and Sam Skunkman are friends. You mm-hmm. know, Skunk one is Afghan by Colombian Mexican. Yep. You know, they start blending things, um, longer things with shorter things. They start playing, they start looking to see, can I get the traits of this Mexican with the traits of this Colombian? Can I get this tie to stop herming and not take seven months? Can yeah. Can I, uh, can I, this, can it's I bud structure to the tie, different Bud things. structure, ah. all that type of stuff. And so, yeah. you know, and then, um, so people, so people start, um, uh, crossing these things, right. Mm-hmm. And so maybe this is a good time. So that, that's what's really happening in the I don't know exactly when it started happening in the 60s, um, but it, it definitely was happening in the 60s. To some degree, it accelerated greatly in the
0: 70s. One second. Um, I'm just going to chime in. Um, Greg actually said, I studied Luther Burbank and then bought all of Rob's books. Burbank worked with cannabis in California.
1: Yeah. So there you go. Even even somebody like Greg, who's I consider to be an, a very early pioneer. Oh, yeah. Doing a lot of stuff. Uh, Rob's work helped him, you yeah. know? Um, and so that's kind of and that's that's also a theme that I'd like to say, uh, you know, right now is that and this remains true, no matter what episode we're going to chat about, is that sure. every single breeder out there stands on the shoulders of the people that came before them, whether Absolutely. it's the, whether it's the seeds and the genetics they have access to, whether it's the forums or books or knowledge from older cats there was a wave of pioneers that really figured it out. And then yep. every generation after that, every group after that, they got to take their work in genetics and improve it or yeah. mess it up. You know, yep. as the case may be, depending and, on hey, your hey, opinion, right? Yeah. But they also got a bunch of knowledge. By the time a lot of you guys on this that are listening got into it, there was probably forums you could yes. go there was breeding forums i mean you go on the breeding forum of overgrow and there's sam skunkman and chimera and people that have a lot of knowledge yeah. you start reading that um and you know the internet books started putting the knowledge out there in a way for people to really access which really yeah. sped up the time it took you know um you know on a i mean on a previous interview uh that you know greg's on this when when uh, matt interviewed greg I mean, Greg spoke about, you know, they got some Afghan beans uh, that were extremely limited from uh, Steve Murphy and they crossed them to themselves. And then they basically crossed them with every sativa they knew of. Yeah. Hawaiians, Colombians, Thais, you know, lots uh, of Mexicans, lots of Mexicans, lots of this, lots of that. They were just everybody was just playing around with. And that's the other part that people need to know, right, is that nobody knew what an Afghan by Mexican would look like. Yeah. It hadn't happened. Not yet. We knew what Colombian by Mexican would look like because that hadn't happened either. So a lot of these pioneers, they're taking, you know, Rob's like, I wonder if I took Colombian and Mexican and crossed it. What does that look like?
0: Yeah. You
1: know, and then maybe later on when skunk one is born, Sam is like, hey, I got access to some Afghans. Let's cross this Afghan into your skunk, into your, you know, your Colombian Mexican Maybe that'll shorten it up even earlier and it'll be done in October.
0: And this, and, and I think this is a good segue into talking about how breeding for uh, just to see what happens um, turned into breeding for traits as they learn these traits, as they, as they saw, you know, this one's purple, this one smells like watermelon, this one smells like cereal. They started learning, well, if we combine these traits, you know, let's, let's see if we can get this trait to pop out if we cross this and this. And they started going and actually having a purpose for breeding uh, with cannabis and finding out that there were these traits that they could follow long flowering, short flowering colors, smell, taste, high, all of it. And it went from seeing what can happen to a, a real purpose,
1: a real purpose. Yes. And so I think probably the two traits in the beginning that people were after was, I like the way this weed tastes and smokes. It won't finish where I live. Yeah. How do I get it to finish where I live? Yeah. Because a lot of this stuff like Panamanian, uh, Colombian, the Southeast Asian stuff is all very near the equator. It takes a long mm-hmm. time. Uh, America is not particularly near the equator. Um, you know, so they had to figure out how do I blend stuff to get the stuff I like and be able to grow it in my region. Yeah. Right. And obviously there's a big financial incentive in that too. Right. Nope. Because nope. you don't have to import it. It doesn't have to come through customs. And that's kind of where green bud was born. Yes. Right. Uh, you know, the way that most of these traditional cultures, they didn't have air conditioned dry rooms or anything like that. A lot mm-hmm. of them dried hanging in the woods. A lot of them dried in the sun. A lot of them dried it and then. Keyload it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it begins to ferment and it gets Mm -hmm. wrapped up in plastic for weeks or months and then shipped for some period of time. You know, if you were lucky, maybe you got some green Mexican that was only lightly compressed that they figured out some way to get it across the border without smushing it into a block that you could cut with a knife. Um, (laughs) you could actually like break it up into actual buds instead of it just being like a, a flat mass. Um, you know, and so that's where, you know, great, Steve Murphy was breeding in the seventies, uh, Greg and his whole Pacific Northwest crew. Um, the, you know, most people in California were breeding either outdoor or in greenhouses. Yes. Uh, the indoor wave was still, and maybe this is a good segue. Um, for a second, I printed out this thing and, uh, you can't really see it. So I'm just going to read it because it's extremely dark, but this is a, this is a, a seed catalog. Um, you know, uh, from 1981, it's tied into Sam and his crew, we assume. Um, but it lists, uh, strains and order of, of when they matured October, November, and December. And it lists mm-hmm. like what, pe- so it gives you a snapshot of what people were actually working with. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so I'll read it to you in October. You had Afghani one, Afghani two, mm-hmm. Afghani two purple skunk one skunk two. yep that's all they list five things before that finish before halloween yeah the faster Uh, finishing right then you have november right nepali malawi nepali afghani malawi nepali early haze by afghani yeah and those are done hopefully by thanksgiving yep and then here comes the mother load of everything and I'll say on this list, it says all of the above can be grown outside in most years in the SF Bay Area. And that's the October and the the November stuff, right? And then below it, it says all below require a greenhouse to finish in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. And now you've got South Indian 1, 2, 3, original haze 1 to 4, burning bush, Nepali haze, haze Nepali, Nepali haze South Indian, early haze South Indian. Haze, South Indian, Thai haze, South Indian, South African haze, Burning Bush by Nepali, Burning Bush by South Haze, uh, by South Indian haze. And then you even have one category matures in January, <laughs> extra late New Year's haze. Yeah, I bet. So <laughs> maybe when people are listening to that, right? Yeah. And, uh, you're uh you're realizing that oh my god, everything that they're mentioning other than afghanian skunk I've never had yeah i don't have afghan i don't i don't i don't malawi and nepali and haze Thai Nepali and this and that and everything else um there's a bunch of um there's a bunch of stuff like that, so that gives you like a yeah. snapshot of like these are what the breeders back then were crossing to each other,
0: yeah
1: right, which is super different okay. Yeah, and so, you know, um, maybe we can mention this, even though it kind of like it fits in, but it kind of doesn't. But the reason why we're talking about all this stuff is that basically like every 10 years, in my opinion, cannabis reinvents itself. Yes. And, absolutely. What was, and what was common becomes uncommon or rare. Yeah. And then you go 20 years from that point and what becomes uncommon or rare becomes like impossible. Yeah. You know, uh, Matt and I were recently looking at somebody's uh, freezer collection that they had been Mm. gifted. It was a big collection. It was super impressive. It was really exciting to look through. And most of it was from 08 to 2012. Yeah. And I was collecting heavily during that time. And so that was Matt's kind of era when he was really collecting a ton and stuff. And, and it's amazing that it's, it's only 10 to 13, 14 years later and ninety-eight percent of that stuff that's on the list you couldn't buy today if you wanted to. Yeah. And and you'd be lucky to find a reproduction if you were lucky. You'd be lucky to find a reproduction, you know. Sure. And there's some famous people on there. Like, you know, a bunch of stuff that people found fire. OG Rascal
0: work. Um Yeah, tons of awesome shit back then too. And and nowadays, like I I even still look out for like white Urkel and White Master and a few things when I see them in lists, but they're they're not common. And he was selling tons of those packs back then. You know, he was killing it. Still, probably is. So all this stuff that we're talking about, right, mm-hmm. is that
1: you know um, what's common in the in the '60s and '70s becomes uncommon in the '80s, almost unheard of in the '90s, a unicorn by by today, and that mm-hmm. just keeps happening, right? Every every ten or fifteen years, uh, what you used to be able to get easy access to becomes super hard to find, right? Sure. But then every generation, in those ten or fifteen years, they're building on certain things. Like I mentioned that list. There's a series of Afghanis that made it over to Neville and SSSC. There's this, there's hazes, there's skunks, mm-hmm. there's different things that happened in that, in that era that survived. Sure. Right. But most of the stuff on that list, you've never smoked. Yeah. I've never smoked. Yeah. You know, I've never smoked burning bush by Nepali, by South. I don't Indian. even know what burning bush is. I don't, I've never seen it. I've heard <laughs> it was maybe Rinzajita. a, I've heard I've heard it was a pre pre to Hayes, you know, it was an early, Mm -hmm. you know, but but, you know, these names, South Indians, stuff like that. um, You know, they they just didn't they just that. But that's what they were growing. So Mm -hmm. all these guys, what that shows you is that all these guys, um, all these guys were basically breeding sativas. Yeah. Right. That's the majority of that list was some sativas There's a couple Afghanis, even skunk one was 75% sativa yeah it was a blend of Mexican Colombian and a little bit of Afghan so it was still even heavily influenced right um, and so Sam Skunkman became very famous in that era that's where you know he he says he started breeding his skunk one in 1975 um, mm-hmm. you know he bred it for eight or ten years before he brought it to uh, California brought it from California mm-hmm. to Amsterdam yeah. Uh, Mel Frank was working with an Afghan that got named Afghani one that he got from another Bay area breeder, uh, who had gotten some Afghani seeds. Um, he got some Durban poison that he was working in the seventies. They were breeding some other stuff like that. Rob Clark was obviously busy, um, in, uh, you know, Seattle, Greg's neck of the woods. They had somehow come across some Afghan and they were also blending in, um, so, you know all the various sativas that people had then in hawaii you know people call stuff hawaiian but there obviously is no hawaiian yeah uh 98 percent of the species uh on hawaii are not native um mm-hmm. because it's an island in the middle of nowhere uh that created by a volcano yeah um, but people started bringing colombian it's very tropical people started bringing thai and colombian and afghans and mexicans there and blending them and growing them on the islands and then they became known as hawaiian yep you know even though they're there's no hawaiian genetics there's a blending of sativas maybe with a touch afghan
0: quick plug for our uh everybody if you're if you're enjoying it uh we have our patreon shop up or we have our merchandise shop up and we have our patreon Uh, Throughout the week, we discuss a lot of this stuff in Discord, what we're going to be talking about. We go on a lot of topics, answer questions there, and we have a pretty fucking awesome community for you there. So go to our Patreon, Breeder Syndicate, if you want to participate. And again, merch. We got hats, hoodies, shirts, you name it, we got it now. There we right, go. So uh,
1: this, has been, uh, this has been, you know, it kind of like uh, took a while, but yeah, it kind of walked people through sort of like, and now we're starting to enter this point where um, we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit more about how the shift happened uh, sure. and then we'll, and then we'll answer some questions, right? Cause we got some okay. good questions this week, so we might as well chat at that. So yeah. fast forward a bit, people are doing all this stuff in the seventies. Mm -hmm. and um you know in the uh in the late 70s uh things were really blowing up people were doing all kinds of stuff together um in very in these various regions i was talking about it was really advancing uh then carter loses the election Mm -hmm. reagan gets uh reagan gets involved and the war on drugs gets ramped up and the world goes to fuck from the from where it had been the penalties are yeah they start putting more money into it and uh they start flying. Mm-hmm. They start taking helicopters and they start flying in Hawaii. They start flying in Mendocino County. They start flying in the Central Valley and some of this stuff. Right? And so what that does is that all of a sudden, all these guys are growing all this weed and they're growing mm-hmm. it in the mountain regions and they're growing it in valleys and stuff like that. And they're not too concerned because nobody's looking for them. And then all of a sudden there's a helicopter flying overhead. Sure. And they got a big field that nobody's ever bothered with before and they get in trouble. Right. Mm-hmm. So pressure starts happening. Right. So, you know, they start hunting it. Uh, people start getting in trouble. And then this is when, so we mentioned before Steve Murphy's book, um, and stuff like that, but people were on the what, what's called the hippie hashish trail mm-hmm. where people were traveling to Nepal. People were traveling to India. People were traveling to the Hindu Kush mountains, They were meeting up with tribal, you know, people and stuff like that. And so there was some small amount of Afghan seeds and indicas that started making its way into America. Yeah. Mostly only to breeder circles, certainly not to consumers the way every bag, every sack of weed you bought had a bunch of seeds in it for free, but they started trickling in smuggling style to Trinity, Humboldt, Mendocino, to the Bay Area, to various other places um, you know, in, in Steve Murphy's book, you see some broad leaf Afghans in 74, uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, you know, Seattle Greg, uh, was working with some of this stuff. Um, and so the, the big advantage in the beginning to people was that you start crossing these Afghans into some of these sativas. And now maybe you're getting stuff that's finishing, you know, the more heavy Afghan you select, you're finishing in September or October.
0: Sure. And and one second, I just want to make sure everybody's really paying close attention to this part because I found one of the biggest uh, myths in cannabis is that Afghanis existed in our culture, you know, just as long as sativas. And and as long as we've been smoking broad or uh, narrow leaves, you know, uh, people didn't know that Afghanis came as a late entry. So when you see a lot of these people making claims about 60s Afghanis and 50s Afghanis, it's very easy to discount with history. So while – seed of
1: sativas like we said before we're getting imported by the literal ton with every bag of weed you bought you got uh seeds of seeds and the the indica stuff was being brought back by smugglers in what i would imagine would be relatively small amounts uh mm-hmm. you know in his, in his interview uh you know greg told you that he got a whopping four afghan seeds yeah whopping a whopping yeah. four you know um And the biggest problem that, you know, you grow in Afghanistan and you, and you grow in the Hindu Kush mountains, it's obviously colder there and it's extremely dry. So people Mm -hmm. start growing them in America and they rot. Yeah. The sativas were grown in tropical, much more humid regions. They had a lot of genetic resistance to rot. And so a lot of the things that people were trying to figure out is they can grow these Afghans and they're like, Oh my God, it's amazing, beautiful, frosty, crazy looking weed. Yeah. And then it's not done and you get some weather and all of a sudden it rots on. And it has a totally different high than a lot of people are used to. Yeah, people go from an up, energetic, kind of zippy high, somewhat psychedelic, laugh, yeah. this, that. Indica's come with much more couch lock, much more heaviness, much more limitation. So a lot of the early smokers didn't like indica. Yeah. It clashed so hard with what they were used to as buds yeah. and, and the effect They weren't super into it, but from a grower's perspective, since I read all that stuff, you know, going from November, December harvest to September, October harvest, when you have police pressure becomes extremely important. Yeah. Right. Um, And so, you know, I, maybe we should talk very briefly um, because it's a pretty simple subject, but when I moved to Mendo in the late nineties, people still mostly grew from seed outside. And the traditional way that you grew from seed was that you would grow some seed, you would pick your males, you would take your males to like a a kind of a darker part of your hill somewhere and you would stash them uh, away from your females. You would grow your females in some patches, right? Mm -hmm. And then you'd collect pollen and you'd go take this pollen from all your males and you'd brush it on some of the lower branches of your favorite females from that year. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe that's how the vast majority of breeding occurred. Even when you look at like Rob Clark's book, he talks about like putting like a, a paper bag, yeah, the paper bands. the yeah. paper bag with a, with a tie over specific branches and putting one on the bag, you know, yep. even talks about like gluing a strip of clear plastic so that it gets some sun on it while it's doing this, Yeah, um, all that type of stuff. And so most, most seventies breeding in America was, Pollinating the bottoms of stuff you were intending on selling. Yeah. And then keeping it. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, with the police pressure and stuff like that, that's really where modern, modern breeding starts. Yeah. Okay. So, um, 70s breeding, not exclusively, but essentially was the vast majority was seasonally they would pollinate their best females with males they had kept somewhere else. Yeah. Right. With the advent of indoor lights and the advent of hydroponic stores and people like, uh, in, growing in the Pacific Northwest, like we've talked about, um, multiple mm-hmm. times, people started to do some of this breeding inside. Yeah. They started doing it away from the helicopters, mm-hmm. away from, away from the lights, away from the ability to get caught. And yeah. it also, it also enabled, um, people to do more than one breeding a year. Yeah. Yeah. I it mean, back a in the day, it's like back in the day, you got like, you got one shot, right? Yeah. that That's, that's what you got. You All of a sudden you go indoor and now, as you know, you can get four or five shots if you want. Yeah. You know? Right. And so that's when, that's when, you know, prohibition really forced people to start going inside. Mm -hmm. And going inside is obviously how 99% of modern breeding occurs. Yeah. I would say, you know, there's not, I mean, there are some people that still breed outdoor.
0: and uh, I would say most people breed outdoor in modern times because it's much more cheap to make seeds that way. I think the ones that take it very seriously and are doing actual selections do it indoors. But generally speaking, most do it outdoor.
1: You know, maybe I should rephrase it. Most yeah. of the seeds that you guys have access to that you can buy currently were probably made indoor. No. You know, you don't think
0: so? No, not at all. No, not at all. all done, it's all done outdoor in greenhouse. Yeah. 99% of it. 99% of it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Even today. Even today. Most of the seeds that people buy are going to be coming from places, big seed banks from the UK, maybe stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I, the way I was looking at
1: it is most of the most of the small and, 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 and most, breeders that, most of the hype breeders either. that people are actually buying a bunch of packs of these days. They're, you know, um, they're mostly doing they were mostly doing it in, in indoor scenes. Um, some of them were doing it in greenhouses. Um, certainly, he's correct in the sense that, like, if I'm only talking about what most people have access to, obviously, when it comes to like all the Mexican and all the traditional stuff. And some of the stuff that's going on in Europe at a larger scale uh, where legality is different, like Switzerland or Spain, they're still probably
0: using greenhouses. That's um, like 95% of the market, though. For America, I think yeah, most yeah, of the oh market. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, no. no. American American boutique breeding is still small market. Um, and even then, a lot of these guys are doing it outdoors, making the seeds outdoors in crazy, crazy places that you can never imagine. You can never and, imagine. Uh, so small, small greenhouses. Tucked away, outdoor, that thing. make the most amount of seeds, and and that's I think for during the uh, early to late up to two thousand eight two thousand nine, a lot of the boutique breeders were all doing it indoors. You know? Indoors, yes. But, so but basically,
1: I guess changed, that was a poorly phrased way to say sure. that from the eighties nineties and the first ten years of the two thousands for about a thirty year period. Yeah. prohibition had a lot of breeding happening indoors
0: exactly
1: yeah. a lot of your famous strains that you know of uh whether they were from SSSC or from Neville or from smaller breeders in America mm-hmm. uh, all the northern lights work all that type of stuff uh the prohibition was heavy uh, yeah. the legality was still not spread out very much and yeah. so for three decades um the vast majority of of breeding that we're aware of uh did did happen inside yeah and now it's opened up again uh you know in various ways in the last you know 10 or 15 years and it's began it to shift leg-
0: it took legalities changing in the u.s though really i think that's what changed it when people were able to grow outdoor and not get popped for it they realized that the, the amount of seeds you can make outdoor versus indoors is, is monumental but sure. the pollen pollen control is totally a different subject pollen, pollen
1: control is hard um not and no and pollen viability is hard too I mean, I know people that have tried to throw off huge greenhouse runs and their greenhouse is too moist and pollen doesn't like heat, light or water. And I've seen a bunch of people have a bunch of failure uh, because they weren't able to control their humidity uh, in their greenhouse. And they think, oh, I'm going to make 15 million seeds and they make 80,000. Yeah. Which is still a lot, but it's a far cry from 15 million because they lost control of their humidity. So, um, you know, part of the so this is kind of taking us up to like people are getting busted, mm-hmm. thing, bad things are happening, and a lot of these American breeders, okay. And this is what segues into what we've done the last few shows. A bunch of these American breeders start fleeing where it's hot and uncomfortable, which is Reagan America, to where it's more comfortable, which is Europe, mm-hmm. Holland, right? Rob yeah. ends, ends up in ho- going into Holland's Sam uh, Jim, all these guys are bringing, that's why Neville and all these groups got access to it uh, was not because that all these guys wanted to share. It was because they were seeking a new place to continue doing what they were doing. Yeah. It got real plot. It got real problematic in the early, in the early to mid eighties, 80s, late eighties. 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, uh, to bring up Seattle Greg again, he, you know, he mentioned on, on, when you interviewed him that by the late eighties, a rolling series of busts had pretty much taken out his whole crew. Yeah. All the work that they had done had been lost Yeah, to them. You know, luckily he shared it with people in Holland, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Sam Skunkman and Rob and Mel and Ed and, uh, these different names that shared things with groups. They did so because it was getting uncomfortably hot to do it where they lived. Right. And they were trying to they were trying to figure out where to do it. And so that kind of segues us into what we what we talked about, which is kind of where we were at of this is how breeding got. And then with SSSC and with Neville and with other groups and that whole era, uh, not only because Holland has, you know, um, not the greatest weather, uh, but Mm -hmm. also for clandestine reasons and simplicity and everything like that, most of the breeding in the 80s and 90s. Uh, at least by the mid eighties through the nineties was indoor. Yes. You know, the famous strains, uh, you know, sour diesel was made inside a lot of the famous pops uh, that happened uh, that came about nineties weed was coming from indoor, right? That was where people could get away with it. Um, People were able to grow in the sixties and seventies for a while freely. And then the cops found out what they were doing and they started looking for it and it became much more difficult to get away with it. And, uh, and so then people responded to that police pressure by hiding it. Yep. And then we went from sort of like yearly breeding outside and in greenhouses to much more cracks at the same thing. You could breed, you could set up different rooms. It's probably very unlikely that somebody like Neville or somebody like the super sativa seed club group would have been able to offer as many strains as they did.
0: Oh yeah. Without
1: individual rooms. Yeah. Uh, the amount, you know, Matt and I were joking about the amount of pollen contamination that could have been <laughs> possible back then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, but certainly if you were trying to do it outside in a greenhouse, you're limited to one, you know, one set of pollen.
0: Yeah. Otherwise,
1: exactly. it's just going to be, you're just going to have pollen grains flying around and who the hell knows what is happening. Playing who's your daddy with seeds like a lot of these guys do now. Yeah. Right. You know, so indoor gardening also allowed people to, uh, you know, it, it allowed people to do multiple different lines. You could offer yeah. Skunk 1 and Durbin and NL5 Hayes and NL5 Skunk 1. And you could have, you know, I don't exactly know the size of these people's rooms, but mm-hmm. it's probably not that much different than it was today. Some bedrooms, yeah. some closets, yeah. some garages, mm-hmm. you know, some converted spaces. Yeah. And that's kind of like that kind of like brings us from like where we were importing you know uh indigenous people's weed uh Mm -hmm. to like how people first bred in the 70s to how it changed and police pressure kind of led us to like where we're at today yep um you know that's kind of that's that's kind of the arc and that kind of leads us right into what we talked about at length the last two episodes of how neville was doing all his work yeah Um, they were uh you know they moved it inside you know so I don't know. Maybe we can pause since we're how long in now? An hour and ten minutes. Hour and twenty. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can pause and we can start. I don't know. Can you see questions? Because yeah, on I can your, see questions system. this time. Yeah. So maybe we should. Uh, maybe we should start an order on the votes aspect.
0: Yep. Um, All right. There um, I go. Uh, what are each of your guys' daily driver strains right now, and what do you like about the strains to use them every day? Go ahead. Um, what's, your, what's your normal daily driver like? Uh, not necessarily today, but your normal one that you, you would grab if you had it every time.
1: So I like, you know, I think it's pretty obvious to people. I like uh, sour diesels and chems and headbands. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I like strains that have a potent and unique high. Uh, and I also like strains that I can smoke every day and they get me high. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of strains out there that get you pretty high the first number of days you smoke them. And then mm-hmm. you kind of plateau on them. And they don't take you to where you need to be yeah, on a daily basis. So I like strains that have lasting power and the ability to like get me high the way I like every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is no, I mean, the chem 91 makes me feel like I'm a stone teenager about to watch a comedy eating yeah. popcorn. It makes yeah. it, it's a warm, fuzzy, comforting buzz, mm-hmm. you know, uh, NL five hazes can make me feel up energetic, maybe a little paranoid, um, you know, Different types of things, to be honest. There's certain yeah. things that are quite famous uh, that I find have a boring high. Mm-hmm. You know, so um chems, headbands, sour diesels, uh, you know, sativas, that type of thing. Uh, you know, it depends on my mood. Obviously, I don't want to smoke uh, you know, a high end sativa like dog shit, like at eleven thirty 30 at night right before bed. Yeah. Cause I might like set my mind off till 1 a.m. But uh yeah. Chems headbands, Diesels, that's what I like. What do you like,
0: matt? Um I'm pretty uh obvious with mine like i'm I'm a blueberry thing, and I like the highs from different ties. they seem uh, afghanis where where most afghanis generally speaking broadly if Afghanis tend to relax people and and you know ease them in, that fucks me up. That shit makes me stay in my head. It's like living in your fucking head and hating life. So I tend to like the ties that are really light. I like lighter highs. So if I have to punch someone, I can still, I don't like to be disabled, you know, that's typically what I like. And one point that we should make is that, uh,
1: you know, we have some really good friends where some of my favorite strains, they dislike, they don't dislike them. They breed with them, but they don't like their high very much. And Mm -hmm. so there is, you know, everybody thinks what happens to me is normal. Mm -hmm. um but with weed it's not normal uh people can have different effects i know people you know there might be people that have a little add that they smoke a a racy sativa and they feel calm and relaxed and mellow yeah where they smoke an afghan and it makes them want to jump out of their skin and climb up a wall yeah where an afghan for me makes me want to like lean back and eat some popcorn and mellow out and laugh
0: yeah an afghan makes me want it like would make me like think about chopping down my grow, you know, like
1: paranoia. Yeah. So, so it's kind of, it is very individual. It's, it doesn't affect people the same. The next question is what, in your opinion, was the most prominent strain to come out of Holland in the nineties, other than chem NL, haze and skunk boy.
0: Boy. Well, well, I mean, purple I can Star say was a big one
1: for, for me, the, uh, like that
0: one of my one that I was really interested in was Purple Star. And that was a uh, a Dutch purple Afghani of some sort. Um, you know, this is kind of cheating because I kind of think it's like
1: modern skunk. But what? certainly in the 90s, uh, you know, sour diesel in America um, became, you know, it's it's a it's possibly a blend of cam and skunk. So maybe that's not the same, but it is it is different. It's not either one of those <laughs> things. That's its own thing. And it became yeah. one of the most popular strains in America during that time frame. Um, you know, it's hard because when you say NL haze and skunk, there's a lot of things that have at least one of those components in them.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's very I mean, hard not
1: to name one. Yeah. It's very hard not to name something that doesn't, doesn't have, have NL some, skunk. Yeah, uh, you know, but but if you're gonna name some of that stuff, you could probably throw in uh, the White family. That came out of Holland, you know, I mean, in the mid nineties, the white widow, the great white shark, the white Russian, uh, that whole line, it doesn't have any NL Hazer skunk that we're aware of. Um, you know, it was completely, it was different genetics. Uh, it was extremely popular. It was all over high times. It was winning cups. Yeah. It was getting blended into all
0: kinds of stuff. Um, when I first know, started growing white widow and white rhino were the ones, you know, I like mean, that's that, what people were talking about. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, an, another thing is, uh, this, this kind of, I think this angers DJ, but, um, you know, DJ gave, uh, DJ gave Tony from Sag Martha uh, mm-hmm. a bunch of blueberry lines and Sag Martha started selling blueberry. And probably for most people, that was their first ability to actually purchase those lines. Yeah, he didn't. You know, if he was giving it to friends or people in his small network, it certainly wasn't as prevalent as giving it to SAG Martha. Yeah, later uh, later on in the '90s, after he had soured on SAG Martha, I believe Dutch Passion uh, Mm -hmm. took over some of his Blueberry work and stuff like that. And so, whether or not he is appreciative of that or not, certainly SAG Martha and Dutch Passion and their breadth of sales put Blueberry. And those lines on the map. They did. It gave people access to them. It gave people the ability to buy them. You know, it made them, it made him essentially forum famous when Cannabis World and Overgrow were happening because all of a sudden you could get these, like these cool sounding strains with these pretty colors, all that kind of stuff was going on. So um, those were, those were pretty famous. You'd have to say they certainly caught Americans attention. Um, And they are also not, NL, chem, haze, or skunk. Yep. But for the most part, most famous things have a little chem, haze, skunk, or NL in them, you know? These are the, build- these are the building block strains, so it's hard we to get to away do. from them. This it next is.
0: one is all Matt. Okay. Uh, do with me. What was Hobbs' Breath creating, or was Hobbs' Breath created using SSSE genetics? Yes. Uh, the only thing I know for sure, pretty sure, is uh, that Jimbo used... Uh, Williams wonder now whether it was Williams wonder across to a random NL Williams wonder across to an Afghani Williams wonder it, it hard to say hard to say um his story did change based on who we told but that was intentional he did not want people recreating it um that that cut was kept very tight until uh several years after his passing and it is now out there um his sister has the Hodgebreath company and her husband they're doing an awesome job with it uh awesome awesome clothes I'm stoking all my hogs gear and Jim Jim was a major influence on me for those that don't know. Um, so yeah, hogs breath is one of my favorite all time strains, I believe CRD underscore SD is going to be doing some stuff with the hogs breath family to bring it back again. All right. Uh, uh, can you guys talk about the 88 G13 hash plant? The Indian worked with not bread, please. Bodie uses it as a male and I believe Hayes man or someone else, even though they weren't supposed to be released pure. Yeah. Um, the the G G thirteen hash plant was selected in, uh, from supposedly bought in nineteen eighty eight by Ascensi, which was not the case, um, and and that was by Swampy, who was an old overgrow member. Indian was his friend. Uh, Indian gets his name attached to a lot of stuff, but what what ends up happening is he asks other breeders to send him free seeds. He distributes them without the breeder's name, and it gets his name got stuck with it again, like the eighty eight G thirteen hash plant. Um, but it is it is the G thirteen hash plant, aka Mister Nice that seed bank or was it Did seed bank distribute it in 88 was it 88 so there's
1: a there's a couple things with this yeah, i throw in uh yeah. one is that there is no 88 g13 hash plant in Thank the you. seed bank it comes out in 89 yeah, yeah um so you know what's a year uh anyway but and um from my understanding uh it had been sort of bred to f4 before bodie got it and bodie cracked them and He didn't realize it had been bred to F4 and bottlenecked a bit, so he got it, and he bred it, and he bred it a few times, and he realized that all the breeding work that he had done with it was kind of bunk. And his best work with it, which is what he crossed everything to and everybody has access to, was actually the initial seed pop. He did better with the initial batch of seeds that he got because they'd already been heavily selected for than him trying to work within the narrow pool post that he thought he was going F you know, F one to F three, maybe yeah, and he yeah. was really going like F five to F eight. Yeah. And that's a big difference, right? That is a big so difference. I think most of what you're getting when you get stuff from Bodhi is the initial batch of seeds that he had got that had already been narrowed down. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when they came from, they didn't come from 1988. Huh. Um, they were sold in 89 and in 90, they were not sold by Sensi. Um, and I don't think until Until uh, no, they named
0: it Mr. Nice, I believe
1: Until they named it Mr. Nice, and Matt and I discovered that that didn't pop up in a Sensi catalog until almost 1999
0: Yeah, was uh, a long time So
1: it was available for two years from Neville's Seed Bank in 89 and 90, I believe that's probably where they come from uh, It was probably a pack or two that the guy bred with you mm-hmm. know, honestly, and so that's not that big of a selection pool Uh, And that's the, it's obviously, you know, I mean, Bodhi's had some great success breeding with some of that. Uh, It's also probably one of those ones where there's not a bunch
0: of places to go with it. Yep. It kind of is what it is. The breeds very dominant. Um, It's pretty purple, smaller budded. Some are, some are large yielding, but I I believe the one that the male that Bodhi uses imparts purple traits, the deadly G male, I think he calls it. And also uh, for those that don't know, Swampy, who originally, put out those G13 hash plant seeds. He also did a cross called free Leonard. And that was the G13 hash plant, butterscotch wine. I believe the butterscotch wine was a female. Yeah. Um, and that one was phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, who was it? Was it Oren that worked with it? I think, uh, yeah, Oren worked with it for a little bit and has done some cool shit with it. Um, it made his caramel wine and a lot of people have since used the caramel line and, and, you know, Yeah. That's about all uh, I can do on that
1: one. The next question we'll go over very quickly because I think Matt and I will both kind of want to punt on it, but we'll see. Yep. Did yeah. Barney's Farm ever have their own in-house breeders? Have they always been a bulk seed reseller? Uh, I don't think Matt or I have a super high opinion of Barney's. Um, I think they've Gary. always kind of been a, a yeah, seed Gary's reseller. Yeah. I think they came in very late to the game when the Dutch scene had already been significantly reduced from its golden yeah. and even silver era. They kind of came in at the, at the tail end of all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know anybody that has actually bred for them. Doesn't mean that they didn't have a little bit of their own house stuff. Doesn't mean you couldn't have found good stuff. Uh, yeah. But certainly most of the Dutch seed banks in the last 10 years have, have certainly fallen off from what they were previous to that in terms yeah. of what people find from them. So uh, next question, longevity on seeds and pollen. Uh, one is quite easy. If you put yeah. seeds in the fridge or the freezer, um, you can extend their life, you know, by quite a bit. And that's pretty standard. Just about every breeder I know that wants longevity on his seeds. Um, they, uh, you know, they put them in the freezer or the fridge, right? Yeah. I'm the just pollen, trying to read the other No, the, the pollen, the pollen, um, Matt can speak to this. I'm sure pollen is a lot more delicate than seeds. It has a lot more limited shelf life in Rob in Rob's first book they talk about you know baking some flour in the in the oven you know and then mixing that flour either ten or hundred to one and then freezing that um you know uh pollen is a lot if heat light water all kills it um it's a lot less viable than a hard seed to keep alive. So, uh, you know, um, that's all I'll say about that. Any, any way you want to store pollen that's not fresh, there's various ways to go about it. it they're all iffy, people have some greater success than others. Next couple questions. Uh, ignore,
0: ignore a few of these because they're We're, just nothing. Yeah, I can't, um, I'm not
1: gonna, you know, T, TK,
0: OG, Urkel, Sour Diesel, those are all their own longer hmm. things. Anyway, uh, do you think Mendo Purp is possibly related to the purple skunk? It was only available in the original 85 catalog and it being inbred for eight years and the sativa effects of the purple Hindu Kush type plant with those purple flowers sound similar.
1: You know, um, like a lot of 90s stuff that you get, uh, the lineage and the backstory that you would prefer to come along with it uh, is not there. Um, Mm -hmm. The only information that I have that I think is factual about the Mendo perps is that the guy that I got it from, Grew it in the late seventies in Covalo, which is a remote valley in Mendocino County. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything other about it besides that. I don't There's a really famous
0: Covalo purple, isn't there?
1: I mean, there. You know, there was. It's sort There's of, you know, and and part of the reason why part of the re- I should say this too is that um, a lot of land race stuff that we were talking about a lot of it tested between seven and fifteen percent THC, and it was really the blending of these various land races and Afghans and these hybridizations. It yeah. really started bumping us up into the higher teens, lower 20s, mid 20s type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so the Mendo Perps, while it has amazing qualities, um, it has very low THC. It's probably somewhere between 8 and 12 percent if they're yeah. not bumping it up, um, which actually kind of lends it lends mm-hmm. to its truth that it could be an original land race brought over. Um, yeah. But I don't have a region of origin. Uh, the only thing I've ever smelled in my entire life that smelled like the Mendo Purps was the Nepalese temple balls that I got from hash smugglers in Amsterdam. That's so cool. um, I thought that it might be Nepalese because of that, but I have absolutely zero evidence pointing one way or the other, other than the fact that it's purple. All I, right, don't think it's, huh? Go ahead. I don't think it's purple skunk, simply okay. because Matt and I have grown tons of skunks, various kinds of skunks it doesn't really have any other skunk characteristics i think
0: Urkel is purple skunk i really genuinely do i know uh csi probably i think he's uh more akin to something x18 or ptk something like that i think it's purple skunk one Urkel, but i do not think mendo perks is purple skunk one um
1: okay so here's some funny ones what's my favorite color in weed uh you know uh don't say green well i mean you know It's it's uh it's you know, I, I do okay, here's the thing. I do think that purple is extremely physically attractive to look at. Mm-hmm. I do think that the cookies and that the stuff from DJ Short and his son J D can be extremely beautiful. The lavenders, the pinks, the blues. Um, I think the Mendo Purps is beautiful. Do I think that those kinds of weed uh are as potent and as strong as the green weed? No. 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 So if you like very light to moderate potency, it could be your thing. But literally every potent strain that I hold and care for um, is some shade of green.
0: Yeah, I, I want to see purples. I need that aesthetic so, in my garden.
1: Um, I, would love, I would love. I would love people. I would love people to breed an extremely high potent pu- potency purple. I haven't seen it.
0: I've you seen know. a few. The the purple unicorn was uh, the Cam D BlackBerry Widow from JoJo Rizzo. It was the first time I got can potency in a just stark purple plant. Yeah. Was- I'm, I'm sure it could exist.
1: I'm just saying as far as most purple things that you're aware of, it's not yeah, common. It's not. And they tend to be, they tend to be lighter. Yeah. Uh, this is a good one. The The golden age of cannabis. I like that question quite a um, bit. I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll talk about this one for a minute because this, this one's kind of dear to my heart and maybe yeah. it's just because I was young, but I think the nineties was the golden age of cannabis. Um, You know, I still think that we could go into another golden age. I don't think it's like it's it's unachievable. But the reason I think it was the golden age is because it was like the first polyhybrid era. Right. Things Mm -hmm. were less inbred. Um, You know, there was a lot more F1s and various polyhybrids coming out that were quite potent. And the, you know, the chems, the sour diesels, the NL5 hazes, like most of our famous, like very extremely famous, the the Cushes. They all originate from that era. And people are still using a lot of 90s cuts um, in their breed work. They're some of the most common cuts to use. They're sort of the backbone of our modern industry is 90s cuts. Uh, And the other thing I think that makes 90s cuts different is that 90s was the last era before the the name game. And Mm -hmm. Matt can speak to this extensively, but one of the downsides to the name game is that every time a famous name or a famous craze happens with cannabis, so many cool, unique things that were easy to sell before get pushed to the wayside. Because as soon as yeah. something becomes not easy to sell, the amount of people that are willing to hold onto it becomes tiny. Yeah. So, you know, um, I'll give you guys a perfect example. I, you know, I live in Mendocino County. When the when the purple craze hit in 04, 05, 06, and everybody wanted to grow grape ape, urkel, lavender, uh, you yeah. know, so on and so forth. There was all these hill people that had been growing all these killer strains for a long time and easily selling them. And then they couldn't sell them. And their neighbor was like, hey, you grow this urkel, I'll sell as many of them as you can get every gram, every gram, yeah. grow. give me your urkel. And so all these strains start to get dropped. And so a lot, a lot of the reason why we still breed with nineties work is because that's when the that's before the bottlenecking happened, and now if you look at what people are selling now, all these boutique breeders, every famous thing gets crossed to every famous thing. Yeah. So sour got crossed to everything. Kush got crossed to everything. Cookies got crossed to everything. Skittles, you name it. Then they start getting crossed to each other from both sides again. Kush yeah. mints by this, by this. You know, cherry pie by cush mints by wedding cake by, and it's all the same blend of the same 30 cuts, unintentional inbreeding, unintentional inbreeding because, and that's, and I don't mean to call out breeders because that's what the public wants. Yeah. Yeah. too. Um, Soma definitely all Soma definitely had some worthwhile offerings. Mm -hmm. Um, his lavender stuff was worthwhile. Reclining Buddha. And his reclining Buddha, he got,
0: he got some G13 by Hayes A from Neville that he used as a male and some of his sativa lines. And a lot of that came out to produce a lot of the CBD lines later on that G13 Hayes male. Yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, when I used to go to Amsterdam, uh, you could buy his, his bud from the Damkring, which was one of the nicer coffee shops in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. He grew good weed. Um, some of his weed was quite popular. It was a little different. Um,
0: that's because he keefed it first.
1: <laughs> I, you know, I try to be nice to people, but he was—he yeah. was a little notorious for potentially running his that weed his in a tumbler for two or three minutes before he put it in the bag to sell the yes. thing, so he could collect the keef. That's for real. Uh, who is a legitimate source for NL1 NL seeds? The problem, when I mentioned earlier on the podcast, which is like every five or ten years, weed reinvents itself. You can go look at almost all of these catalogs from the '90s. And it is almost impossible to find the vast majority of these lines in seed form. yeah, Unhybridized, pure skunk, you know, I mean, it, it just is. Um, it's It sucks to say it, but um, every 10 years stuff becomes rare. That's the 90s now. That's, you know, 25 years ago plus. Um, most yeah. of the stuff that was available in the 90s is no longer available today. You can't get it. Um, it exists in various hybrids. I have, I have a tendency to think that Bubba Kush is, has heavy NL one influence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think some of this stuff exists in different names. Um, but that's the sad part. If you don't buy it and store it, uh, you might want it later on and you can't get it. Yep. History of the 1979 Christmas tree. I'm going to skip that one. Maybe I don't know it. Maybe if CSI comes on at some point, um, yeah. Uh, aspiring breeders. Um, oh, I'll uh, skip that one too. Not because not because it's a bad question, but it's kind of complicated. Yeah. Uh, I haven't heard of any bud called UFO in Florida.
0: Nope.
1: Um, I, I, don't I, know I don't know anything about freeze drying cannabis. I know there's companies out there. You know, uh, there's there's companies that are that are claiming that freeze drying is amazing uh i have specific methods of drying and it certainly doesn't involve freeze drying uh,
0: uh here's a good one when and who started making feminized seeds dutch passion off uh gives themselves credit for it but it was actually a man named mohan ram and i can't remember something set as ett that were first doing the the scientific experiments on plant reversal using cobalt colloidal SGS, and several other methods
1: um okay so here's something that's interesting um i uh will skip a couple of these not because they're not nice questions but i don't know anything about the new york recreational uh, rules or anything like that i don't know anything about the new uh uh attorney general for our state yet um you know uh Central American cannabis, what's the importance of it? I mean, it's very important. Um, Mexican is is Central America, uh, and Mexican has been bred into all kinds of stuff um, mm-hmm. that we use. Uh, the other Central American countries, not so much. Um, it does exist, uh, but it certainly didn't have the impact in terms of breeders working with it. There's certainly Honduran and El Salvadorian and, you know, that kind of thing. Panama, Panama is, also, is also technically central Um is also technically Central America. So uh, the two famous ones from Central America that have a lot of influence and have been bred into a bunch are Mexican and Panamanian. Yeah. Um, let's see. Cubing. Cubing is sort of BXing in a way. It's kind cubing, of a bullshit concept, but I'll well, let speak on it.
0: Yeah, cubing is, is great if you have a, a true F1 and you want to isolate a single one or two traits that that that's effective and then you cube then you then you cross forward that's that's generally how it works um however i always give this example every time um people tend to think of c99 when they hear cubing because it was back crossed three or four times um can't remember what the claim was from Seoul, but it was all bullshit anyways but in, in a sense is in a sense you don't want to take a line that has fucking a thousand phenos and try to cube it you're not going to get anywhere in four steps back to isolate all the traits like that and a lot of people confuse that cubing isolate a few traits crossing forward isolate multiple traits that's that's really the the best way i can describe it um
1: that kind of ends most of the questions i think for this week there's a few we didn't get to urkel is potent no i don't think urkel is super potent Rips for me. Me but other people might think so. Yeah. I definitely think <laughs> I it's one of them. I think it's <laughs> one of the more potent purples, but yeah. I would not put it up against the more, I would not even remotely, it wouldn't be in my top 10 or even 20 uh, most potent strains that I've tried. And uh, see, for me,
0: it's one of the top 10 that will instantly give me paranoia. any anytime well, I I mean, yeah. you know,
1: the it's, race,
0: policy, it's just the way it goes with my brain.
1: Yeah. There's a guy, there's a, there's a gentleman asking about, do you think race seeds are still good at the source? Um, you know, Depends. I don't know anything about those guys, but I certainly support people going around in oh. Afghanistan and Pakistan.
0: Is he and talking about a specific company or is he talking about? I
1: think there's the general- a company called Landry seeds that, yeah. that, that brings stuff over from Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, it's not that easy for white people to go there and no. collect things right now. I and mean, we, we went to war with them for a couple decades. And so it's a little sketchy with the Taliban and stuff. And so the fact that you have people that are going to collect and send seeds, I don't know what will come of it, but it's definitely an access point. Um, and we'll go from there. Uh, you know, and uh, the difference in early Colombian haze, I think the difference in early Colombian haze and why it was better was it was just raw crosses and less inbred. I think there was a lot of mistakes made in the 70s on accident. As people learned, they didn't use large enough population sizes. I think it's been documented that a lot of the best phenos that the Hayes guys liked started disappearing in the mid to late 70s because they made some some poor choices with selections and they weren't sure what they were doing. Um, You know, the South Indian stuff has kind of been debunked now. Sam is saying that it was always colo by colo. Yeah, uh, which is Colombian by Colombian. He's saying that the this four way blend is a bunch of bunk uh, and it's not true. Um, so uh, I can't I can't speak to that. Um, so I don't know. You know, I mean, here we are. That's basically the end of the questions. There's, uh, you know, there's a guy that said that Mexico is North America. Uh, I'm aware that uh, that uh, that they don't consider Central America a continent. But since the question was asked about what came from Central America that was beneficial, you know, if people are talking about Central America, it's pretty much Panama to Mexico. Um, I realize it's all either North or South America as the way that uh, geography would work. Uh, I was just trying to answer the question. The Durban stuff we're going to ignore. Simply, we have some stuff coming up that I think will shed a lot more light on the Durban thing next week. And so I don't want to chat on that. Two weeks two weeks, something like something <laughs> re- re- relatively close. There'll be some really good new
0: information. Oh, we new can, most. Of it. I think huh? we could talk about it now since it's most of it's in the can. Um, is that, okay? you want to talk about it real quick? Just plug it. Yeah, We could we, we plug it really quick. So,
1: um, you <laughs> know, we, uh, we, we were blessed and we have been able to interview um, the, the founder of super city seed club. Uh, and um, as part of our like eighties, breeding program neville's obviously passed so we weren't able to interview him but you know neville and super sativa seed club were the two largest ones and we have a lo- quite long interview coming that we're going to be giving some context to where we ask him a bunch of questions about some very famous strains, what it was like back then um a lot of cool stuff a lot of stuff that surprised even matt and myself uh new information he was super engaging and cool uh I'm really excited about it. We gotta edit it a little bit in various ways just for uh, you know, but um you there's know There's a lot we, of
0: myths busted.
1: There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's gonna come out that's super neat. There's a lot of stuff that's gonna come out that uh you know that might make flip some death. that might make people sad or flip some stories that have been kind of accepted on their head. Um, you know, I think uh the Durban thing is interesting. You know, um, you know, and and so we'll we'll sort of save that that for that. But uh, the Durban story is a little wider than we once thought. Yeah, let's put it that it way. And so yeah. we do have that interview coming. It should be great. He was super cool to chat with us. Uh, he'll really flesh out what life was like back then and what breeding was like. And he was one of the two biggest uh, seed banks in the world in the 80s. So we're really excited to be able to bring that stuff to you guys in the near future. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, so I don't know, that kind of like, that kind of takes us to, uh, um, that kind of takes
0: us to sort of the end of like our arc here. We answered a bunch yeah. of questions. I don't um, know. We're... Yeah. have uh, again, do you want to want to be a part of this? You want to be a part of some of the research we're doing. If you want to see a lot of the, like I, 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 a lot of people know I collect a lot of old stuff, you know, like old cannabis memorabilia. Um, I post a lot of the shots from those books in there, like as I come across them, cool shit that that adds to the history of cannabis. Um, we have a a depository we're working on with a lot of old catalogs, a lot of old magazines, a lot of old books that are inaccessible to most people. Um, we also have the merch shop. Again, uh, you can click buy syndicate merch um, right under one of our heads and uh, it should take you there. And you can buy a hat, shirt, anything that helps support us. This shit costs money to do. And we're actually like, I just bought a new mic that I couldn't use this time and a few other things. So it does cost money. The more you support, the more we can do and the more we're appreciative and we can do more giveaways and cool shit.
1: So, yeah. I'll just throw some uh, one basic (laughs) plug is that, uh, you know, if you guys can't figure out how to join, you can always send a a DM to Matt or myself on IG. Or Or Breeder Syndicate. Or Breeder Syndicate. We'll share the link. Uh, that'll take you right to where you need to be. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we have our own like we have our own chat in there where you can ask us questions all the time, and we we chop it up with people on a much more regular basis. Uh, our point to all this is to get information out there and talk about the stuff that interests us. So um, yeah, if you can't find it for some reason, give Matt or myself a shout, and we'll send you a link and point you in the right direction. And I hope everybody enjoyed uh, listening to a, a longer. Uh, um, a longer thing and just hit us up yeah. and we'll see you guys there. Um, as someone said, not so accept my follower have three years, bad luck. D, uh, DM me on, on IG. I have, I have like over a thousand, uh, I have over a thousand people waiting. It's not intentional. Um, but if you hit me up personally and I can chat with you for a second, I'll accept you and we'll go from there. Um, there's a link at the bottom that, uh, breeder syndicate just put up. There's the thing to pledge at if you can't, Uh, if you want to send us a link, we'll send you a link too. And, um, we're going to be doing this all the time. So, uh, we're going to have some shorts coming up. We're going to have some cool interviews with some old schoolers. We're going to have more lives that are just like this. So there's going to be some variety and content coming, um, some more interviews, uh, you know, uh, like I said, some short topics, some more long winded shit like this. That's an hour and 50 minutes long. (laughs) Um, And so we're just gonna We're gonna start adding Adding to it over time And trying to make it cooler And hopefully everybody Enjoyed listening While they're What they're up to
0: I like the uh, The idea of keeping us all On an even playing field When it comes to information Some guys like to Secret squirrel that shit Others don't Um We want everyone on an even playing field to be able to make the best weed possible because if everybody's making good weed, we can all build off each other's shit. So thank you guys for showing up.
1: Thank you very much for showing up. We really appreciate it. We all hope you have a great weekend. Uh, Enjoy, everyone. Have a great day.